0: Take your Bible to Hebrews chapter 10, and uh, for our teenagers joining us this morning, uh, we are in a study on Hebrews, a tremendous book, a deep book, and after it this morning, Hebrews chapter 10 deals primarily um, with eternal security. And so if you have ever struggled with wondering, hey, I know I was saved. I, I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe the record. I confessed with my mouth. I called out for salvation. I know I was saved, but I'm wondering now if I am saved. Hebrews 10 is the place to go. And Hebrews 10 talks about the singularity of Christ's sacrifice, the finality of Christ's sacrifice, the once and for all nature of that sacrifice. And uh, it postures it against the sacrificial system of the Jews that year after year, blood would flow, rivers of blood and uh, streams of oil. As it says, I believe in Leviticus or Deuteronomy, it just talks about how there's just so much shed blood and it was a continual need uh, for the folks to realize their their condition as sinners but that Christ once and for all made a sacrifice, sat down, it was finished and there's no more sacrifice that will ever be made or ever be needed uh, for the saints of God. Even if we sin willfully there's still no sacrifice needed Even, even knowing that hey I'm saved and I can do whatever I want and I won't go to hell. Well that's probably true. If Well, that is true. I, I, the only probable is on whether or not you actually were saved. But if you are saved, then probably you're not going to take that mindset toward the grace of God doing despite toward it. Um, but if you so choose, uh, the author here in Hebrews has something to say about it. And uh, so for the first part of the chapter... Up to verse 26 or so, uh, the author deals with the idea uh, of eternal security. But then he brings us into this this kind of teaching moment, and it's such a powerful one. We saw it. We spent most of our time uh, on verses 26 through, I think it's verse uh, 32 and uh, verse 31. And we went through and just unpacked that. We're just going to read it briefly this morning and uh, take a look at it. And then we're going to jump into our new content in verse 32. And so let's look at it, if you would. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 says this. For if we, talking about saved people, uh, sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. So if you're saved, you're saved. There's never going to be another blood uh, blood drop shed on your behalf. Uh, You cannot be saved again if you have been saved. But he says this, and he's speaking to the Jews, and he reminds them of the way they had to live under the law. Being under Moses, being a child of God, uh, being a Jewish person, you were nationally elected the people of God. But even as a nationally elected person of God, you could still die in your sin Uh, because, listen, because you are chosen does not mean that you are safe. Because you are saved this morning doesn't mean you are safe. Uh, It does mean you're safe from hell, but it doesn't mean that God won't judge you. It doesn't mean that I can go live however I want. Well, You can because uh, all things are lawful. You're not gonna go to hell for any reason if you're saved this morning, but that doesn't mean God is not gonna judge you. And so the author sets out to remind the Jews in verse 27 uh, of the fact that, hey, because you were nationally elected, doesn't mean that God wouldn't have you die under the law. It says, but a certain fearful looking for judgment Uh, looking for of judgment rather, and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. How much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing, and hath done despite under the Spirit of grace. He said, hey, if you were a Jew, nationally elected, chosen the people of God, you could still die by, your disobedience and how much worse will it be if you're a child of jesus christ through the redemptive work of, of the son and you do despite toward the spirit of grace you you despise him and you deem the blood of jesus an unholy and a common thing and you trodden underfoot with your actions and living the body of jesus christ and just go on to do whatever you want he says hey if they died under the law of, in, in of moses with two or three witnesses it's going to be much worse for the christian who troddens underfoot the blood of jesus verse 30 For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. Now, sometimes we make the mistake of disconnecting the God of the New Testament from the God of the Old Testament. It's the same God. And that is a quote. Vengeance is mine. That's a quote in the Old Testament. And he's saying, hey, listen, God was in charge of keeping his children in the Old Testament in line and would bring plagues upon them and would bring death upon them and would bring hardship upon them. And that is the same God of the New Testament who will judge his people. And so listen, because you're saved, praise God for that. You're never going to taste hell. If you've accepted the record of Christ and called upon the name of the Holy uh, the name of Jesus, and you've Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Your name's written down in the book of life. You are forever forgiven. Awesome. But that doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. I mean, you technically can, but he will judge you. Now, I I don't have time to, and I I wouldn't feel uh, in an appropriate setting, but I I know of people uh, who have done exactly this thing. They've done despite to the spirit of grace. They've trodden underfoot the blood of Jesus. Uh, In some instances, the church has had to maybe deliver them to Satan for the destruction of their flesh so that their spirit might be saved. I have friends I grew up with in high school uh, who died uh, a, a fool who God took their life because they were continuously rebelling against God. I've got a kid from the youth group that I I was a youth pastor of in Lompoc who died up here in Lake Isabella. Uh, He died a a drunk fool because he was running from God and he got drunk and fell off a boat and hit his head and he died uh, doing despite to the spirit of grace. Uh, There is a backstop to God's mercy. He's a good God, but he's a God who's not to be trifled with. And and that's actually what the very next verse, let's read that uh, verse number uh, 31 says. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Again this is the idea of well God only God can judge me. And we briefly mentioned that you would rather be judged by man than judged by God. Because God both possesses the ability to know what you've done and the ability to judge you according to your works. And so it is a fearful, it is a terrifying, it is a scary thing to fall into the hands of a God who knows everything you've done and said and has the power to judge you accordingly. Every idle word we give an account for and so forth. Now, something happens in verse 32 that we kind of had to run up against. And this is our new content. And again, if you're a teenager jumping in, uh, this will be brand new for you as well as for the adults that are with us. In verse 32 and beyond, through the rest of this chapter, there's a very unique shift that happens in this chapter we have not seen at all in this entire book. In fact, it it only appears in these brief verses. It doesn't appear anywhere before and it doesn't appear anywhere after. And here's what happens. The author shifts into first person. Think about it. That hasn't happened at all. Every bit of the story has not been, it's been completely separate from the author. Uh, when, when we read uh, Paul's letters to the churches, there's a lot of first-person pronouns. He goes back and forth that we and you and us and, and uh, you know, the group that he was with. And he'll write in uh, uh, first person often. Uh, but in this entire book, there's not been any first person used at all in the writing. Even Luke does that in the book of Acts oftentimes. He'll talk about it almost in third person, you know, Paul and them and them. And then I think it's in chapter like, uh, it's somewhere toward the end of the book of Acts where Paul or Luke starts using the, the pronoun we And it becomes first person in that that regard. Well, here is the only time in the entire book for just a moment of time, the author breaks his normal character. And so it's it's intriguing because maybe there's a clue to authorship um, in this particular, I know, I know, it's like the sidebar, you know, Casey's been chasing. Um, Let's see what he teaches us, but he does. He breaks into first person, but there's also a big shift happening. He's no longer warning them. So I told you, he kind of jumps on both sides of the fence. Hey, eternal security, you're safe. Hey, and for just a minute, for those six verses we just read, he says, hey, but because you're saved doesn't mean you're safe. Now he's going to call them not to warning, but to confidence. So look at verse 32. But, so in contrast uh, to people who might trample underfoot, but uh, call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of afflictions. So here's what he's saying. He says, remember, When you first got saved, God brought you through a whole bunch of trials in those early days. Now, don't ever forget when reading a book of the Bible that there is history behind that Bible. There are a real group of people this book was meant to and uh, written to. There was a real author who wrote this book, and there's real stories behind those books. Uh, And so every time you read one of Paul's epistles, a lot of times you can read in and see some of that history right there in the conversation and communication. But here's the first time we're starting to see some of the knowledge and the relationship that exists between the Jews in general and this particular writer. And he says, hey, you remember when you first got saved, there was a bunch of hardship that happened to you and God took care of you. Now, what could that have been? I don't know. It could have been the famine uh, that caused Paul the necessity to bring an offering. It could have been uh, any of the persecution under uh, uh, under Nero or any of the things that were happening in that first century. And the author simply says, hey, there were some real issues when you first got saved and God was faithful then. And here's what the rest of the chapter is going to be. And he'll be faithful now. That, that's the rest of what he's going to tell us. He's calling them to confidence because God was faithful then. He'll be faithful now. But now look at verse number 34 or ye had compassion of me in my bonds. Now I hope if you're a student of the word that's a very unique break of character. Up until now there have been no connections personally No real person behind the the curtain, if you will. Uh, Up until this point, it's all been very uh, distant from a personal real connection. But here in this passage, he says, "...for ye had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and enduring substance." So here's what the author says. Hey, you Jews, when, I, when you were first saved, God took care of you through great afflictions. And, and then you, at some point in my own afflictions, you turned around and spoiled your own goods and sent liberally to me while I was imprisoned for the faith. Now that is perhaps the largest clue of authorship we've received yet. So who did this happen to? We're no closer to the answer. And here's why. If God wanted us to know the answer, he'd have told us the answer, right? But he didn't. So did this ever happen to Paul? Well, Paul was imprisoned, but do we ever have any record of the Jews ever sending any help to him? No. No, in fact, it would seem relatively unlikely. The, the relationship between Paul and the Jewish people as a whole was, was rather strained because of his ministry to the Gentiles. But do we have any record of Apollos being imprisoned? No, we don't. Do we have any record? Of, there's just no one we know that would even fit this bill particularly. Um, so the good news is with the greatest of clues, we still have zero idea who wrote the book of uh, Hebrews. But like I mentioned, don't get lost in a verse like this trying to chase down a a possible implication that you miss the actual interpretation. You miss the actual application. The author is saying, hey, he's not saying, hey, future Christians in Bakersfield, try to guess who wrote this. What he's saying is, hey, Hebrews, remember how God was faithful to you and you were then faithful to me in my bonds and God has not changed and therefore you should remain faithful. That's what's being said. Now there again, it's kind of fun sometimes as a student to try to mine out some further implications or clues, but the Bible is not a mystery book to be solved. Uh, God didn't give us some kind of code in there that if you flip it upside down, skip every third word and read it on Thursday, you'll know when Jesus is coming back. That's not what the Bible is meant for. The Bible is meant as a plain letter revealed to us so we would know the truth. Uh, Even even, uh, the eschatology revealed in scripture, the end of days things, isn't so written so we would know every single detail. It's written so we know he's coming back and we have a job to do, so therefore do that job. Think about the the messianic promises of the Old Testament. We look back at them and we're like, oh yeah, John the Baptist, that should have been a clear indicator. He's the last prophet to come and then the Messiah was coming and all the people held him as a prophet. Man, that, that should have been an indicator. But would they have gotten it in their day? They didn't understand all this. When Jesus came the first time, they thought he was coming to be king. Because they have these promises in Zechariah, they have these promises in other passages in scripture that they're like, hey, yeah, but they didn't understand it all the way clearly. And we're not understanding it all clearly, but we understand it clear enough to know what our job is. We understand it clear enough to know that there's something coming, he's returning, he's going to be king. But the fact of the matter is there's some very clear teaching that's happening in the book. So don't get lost in the weeds trying to solve the mystery as much as just trying to understand what's written. You understand where I'm going with that? So this, this, uh, this clearly stated the purpose is to encourage the Jewish Christians to stand strong. The author is reminding them if God could deliver them then and, and even allow them to flourish and spoil their own goods and hardship to be able to deliver and help another Christian, that God is faithful even now. So look at verse number 35. It says, "'Cast not away, therefore, your confidence.'" which hath great recompense of reward. He says, listen, don't lose your confidence. There's a reward that's coming. uh, And that's gonna play really important role in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is what we would know as the hall of faith. uh, And those are the promises, the substance of promises they don't yet hold. And so don't lose that. But he's, he's introducing this idea right now in chapter number 10, cast not away your confidence which hath great recompense of reward. He was faithful then, he will be faithful now. Don't ever give up that confidence. Uh, Don't ever get to the place where you're like, well, but I can't see what the, I can't see the promise, I can't hold the promise. Yeah, that's where faith is gonna need to come in. And that's the whole point of chapter 11. He's gonna say, hey, you may not hold the things in your hands. They may not be tangible now, but faith is the substance of the things you're hoping for. So don't lose that confidence. He was faithful when he first saved you. He's been faithful every day since. Don't lose that confidence. Listen, when things are not good, that only means that God is not done. You look at your life and say, yeah, but 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 right now it's not good. That just means that God is not done because God will work all things together for good. But that is a working process. Sometimes in that process, it doesn't feel good. In fact, oftentimes in that process, it feels anything but good. But that just means that God isn't done, that he's still working. There's still something good to come out of it. And so he's admonishing the Christians in verse 34 and 35 to cast not away their confidence which hath a great recompense of reward. And so listen, continue to stay faithful, no matter what you're facing. If he was faithful when he first saved you, and then he's been faithful every day since, wouldn't it be weird if he all of a sudden decided now to be unfaithful? It'd be a strange time for God to drop the ball. Hasn't done it one time throughout all of human history, but all of a sudden in your circumstance, now he's going to drop the ball. No, from the beginning, he was faithful. Uh, in fact, that's what we're going to study tonight, uh, uh, kind of a, a break off of the study of Hebrews and some, some things I've been a little working on on the side. Look at verse number, six, verse number six, forgive me. It says, For ye have need of, read that word, would you? Patience. Oh, love that word. Psych. Not a huge fan of that word, it, just practically speaking. But he says, You have need of patience. Don't, don't get flighty, don't get panicky. Don't be hasty. You know, that's our nature, right? That fight or flight mechanism kicks in and man, we're facing something. And I know, I know, I know. God was faithful when he saved me. And man, there've been circumstances and man, we stood by gravesides and God has always been faithful. But right now, ah. and he says, no, 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 no. You have need of patience. I know you can't hold the promise you were made yet. I know it's not been materialized just yet. I know that it's not in your hands just yet. I know you don't have that crown just yet, but you are in need of patience, not be hasty. He says, for ye are in need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. Isn't that great? We would have it the other way if we were God. We would say, okay, I'm going to give you a promise, and I'm going to give you, I'm going to fulfill the promise, then you're going to walk through the trial. And God says, no, I'm going to give you a promise, you're going to walk through life, you're going to get the promise. And that's how Christianity works. Isn't that how a race works? Right, could you imagine how many of us would actually run if we got the medal at the starting line, right? We're supposed to run and then receive the reward. And the author here is admonishing us. Listen, God was faithful when you started, even those first days when it was hard to the point that you were even able to give and God still provided your needs. And then you continue to walk through, but hold to faith. It's the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. In fact, it's impossible to please him without it. So this process is a planned process. God intends for you to have to walk through seasons that are not easy, where you don't understand, where you would change it if you could, but that's part of the Christian life. It's not possible to please him without it. But he says, walk through with patience. And after that you've done the will of God, you will receive the promise. You gotta walk through it though. You gotta carry on, knowing that from the beginning he was faithful and in the end he will remain faithful. Look at verse number 37. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Uh, I, I love what the author says. He says, he's coming back soon. You don't have to wait very long. The Jesus that ascended into heaven is coming back for us soon. And you're not gonna have to wait long. 2,000 years later. <laughs> I love the New Testament perspective of the return of Christ. It's yeah. imminent. And so it should be with us. We shouldn't say, well, yeah, it's been 2,000 years. So it's probably another four. We don't know. They always thought it was imminent. We believe it, that it's imminent. We're just waiting for the for him to come back. Uh, but now, actually, there's actually a subplot that you, some of you might have noticed. I, I would I would venture to guess that you probably didn't. Um, it's a quote from Habakkuk. Now, go to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse number 3, if you would. Keep your finger in Hebrews. Habakkuk's one of those, those books that you're like, I hope I can find it before the guy next to me. You're like, am I flipping left or am I flipping right? Some of you with tabs, you're cheating right now and you feel good about it and you shouldn't. No, I'm just kidding. Habakkuk is a hard book to find. Um, Habakkuk chapter number two, verse number three. This is what makes it so unique to this particular style of authorship is that it's like, you know, and again, this is just, I, I don't want to sidebar, but I'm gonna sidebar for a second. This is one of the reasons I don't think Paul wrote it. Paul is like softball down the center, underhand, It hath been said before, whereas the writer of Hebrews is like, just rolling through, dropped a Habakkuk reference there, and I expect you to get it. Um, This is why I would say the book of Hebrews was not written to us, but it was written for us. And there's a difference. You don't have to be uncomfortable with that statement. The book of Hebrews was not written to us, but it was written for our learning. It was written for our admonishment, but 100% it wasn't, it wasn't written to us. It'd be like me writing a letter to my wife with a bunch of you know, internal references and you know inside jokes or whatever, and you would get it, and you'd get the letter, and you'd read it, and you'd understand it, but you'd be like, I don't understand, there's something, there's something there I don't, I don't capture. You'd have to know, you'd have to be able to ask the author. Oh, or, in this particular instance, using a commentary really helps you catch these things. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse number 3 says this. Um, for this vision is yet for an appointed time, but to the end it shall speak and lie not. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it shall surely come. It will not tarry. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. Now we didn't see the, the second verse in that quote. That's because it's actually verse number thirty-eight, back in Hebrews ten. So what I just read in Habakkuk chapter two, verse three and four. Are a reference, are referenced rather, are referenced to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37, 38. So go back to Hebrews chapter 10. It says, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul. Uh, shall have no pleasure in him. So just real fleetingly and with with not even a passing glance, the author drops a reference there that the Jews themselves may very well have captured. Um, maybe they wouldn't. I, I don't know. But it's the author of this book has a vast knowledge of the Old Testament, a powerful just wellspring of knowledge of the Old Testament that we as Gentiles are are not afforded. You say, well, why aren't we afforded? Well, I mean, you can do it. You can study, you can memorize, you can so forth. The Jewish people who grew up in that particular day would have gone through daily schooling in the in the law, in the temple and so forth, and uh, their training in their synagogues and so forth would have mem- uh, memorized vast portions of the Old Testament. And so again, we're a little bit behind the curve um, on this, but re- uh, uh, commentary certainly helped. Look at verse number 39 of Hebrews 10. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. And he's just reminding them, Hey, we are to carry on. We are not the people who give up. Uh, He was faithful. Then uh, he's faithful. Now carry on. He will be faithful uh, throughout. In fact, that idea is what carries us into the hall of faith in Hebrews 10, uh, Hebrews 11. But I would say this, if I could modify that, I would say it's, also, it's not just a hall of faith that records the great faith of, of uh, patriarchs and the great faith of, of Old Testament believers. It's also, in its context, it's actually a call to faith. Not just a hall of faith, but a call to faith. There's a reason the book exists or this particular chapter exists. And oftentimes we parse out chapters to their own, you know, thing. And I have certainly preached just on Hebrews chapter 11 but we have been afforded the privilege. And, and I don't, I don't wanna say it's a privilege like we shouldn't all get it. We should get verse by verse study. That's that's a pastor's responsibility. But right now we're sitting at a place where we've studied every verse up until Hebrews 11. So now Hebrews 11 is gonna make a whole lot more sense because it's not just this like parsed out museum you visit where you look at the faith of Abraham and the faith of Enoch and the faith of Moses. Can you do that? Sure. But now we know why this chapter exists. It is a call to faith. He's saying, hey, remember when you first started, you had promises, but you had to walk through in patience, and someday, after you've done the will of God, he will give you those promises? Hey, let me tell you a bunch of people who had promises that they didn't get to hold until later, and their faith was what carried them through. Abraham was given a promise that his son would, would live and bring forth generations and blessings, but he didn't get that promise till he walked through in faith. And Enoch, he walked with God, and he was not, but he had promises, and he didn't get to have those promises till after he walked through with patience and faith. So it's a a call to faith, not just a hall of faith, okay? So now you know where we're going. You know why this chapter exists. Let's pick up in verse number one of Hebrews chapter 11. He says, now faith is the substance. I love substance. Remember, we've already seen that word. Well, I can't do it. There's a tree here, Miss Yadira. And uh, you messed up my illustration, Miss dear. Here's a here's the hand. Remember the shadow on the wall? We talked about how it was a shadow of things and not the very substance. Well, now he's bringing it into another context. He's saying, hey, the actual manifestation of the Old Testament was Jesus. And the actual manifestation of all these promises is going to be when you stand before Jesus. But until then, just like in the Old Testament, they had to walk through without that thing. They had promises, they had shadows, but they had no substance. And you and I in the New Testament, we have promises, we have shadows of things to come, but we don't have the substance just yet. So we have to walk through in patience and in faith. Let's pick up verse number one. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So rather than fleeing, have patience and stay faith-filled and wait for the substance of those things that were promised. And I love it. It's the substance. When you cannot feel the promise Someday, and let's just pick crowns, right? Someday we will feel the substance of the crowns that God gives us, should we be faithful. Now understand there's no participation crown in heaven. You actually have to live a life that, that earns that crown to cast at his feet. There's no participation crown. There's no saved person crown, okay? Um, there's, there's other crowns in the New Testament that the Bible talks about, how you can lay those at his feet and earn those, uh, martyr's crown, so forth. Um, but it's the substance. When we can't touch the promise, we know that faith is what we can, we can feel. When we can't see or hold our loved ones who's passed into, into the next life, we cannot feel them, but faith is the thing we can feel. It's such an intangible promise, isn't it? It's, it's almost hard to, to kind of lay hold on, and that's on purpose because you can't touch it physically, you, but you can feel it spiritually that He's made me promises. I can touch this physically. And if God has been faithful in every way He's uh, interacted with me thus far, and not just me, but all of humanity, from Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel all the way till the end, then what I can hold is faith. So let's keep reading. He says, for, it, by, for by it, the elders obtain a good report. So the author is going to once again uh, appeal to his Jewish audience with a historical narrative of faith. Um, that's really what he's about to do. He's about to take a historical study of, on people of the Old Testament that had great faith. You're also going to notice in this list, should we have time to get through some of it, in this list are people, the Jews, we've established this from the beginning, that the Jews held an unhealthy reverence for. They held Moses too high and Aaron too high. You're going to find some of these men that the Jews would have said, man, David was awesome. And he's going to say, yeah, these people struggled with, they struggled through their life with holding, they, they held faith. So he's going to paint them in a good light, not in a not in a comparison light, but you're going to see some of those folks reappear. Uh, verse number two, again, for by it, the elders obtained a good report. Through faith, we understand. So before I get to the history account, let me talk to my audience. Uh, Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things that do appear. So there, there's a really important statement he makes. Through faith, we understand. Through faith we understand. That's again an intangible truth. But he says, by faith we understand something we have never seen with our own eyes. By faith we hold the substance of something we've never held with our own hands. And this, my friend, is the economy of the Christian life. We cannot and have not seen heaven yet. We cannot and have not seen the end of the trial you're in just yet. We cannot and have not seen maybe the healing hand of God in our present circumstance, Uh, the loved ones who've passed on before, the end of your sacrifice and obedience. We cannot hold those things, but by faith, it is the substance of things that we hope for. By faith, we understand what the end of it shall be. By faith, we understand things we have not seen. And he uses the illustration of the creation of the world. None of us saw the creation of the world, not even evolutionists, right? By faith, we understand what happened though. And we have not seen the end of our Christianity, but by faith, we understand it. And by faith, we can hold what we cannot hold just yet. And faith is this really important thing that Christians are supposed to walk through. So to reinforce the statement the author sets out to, he establishes, or to, to, uh, to, forgive me, to reinforce this statement of faith, that it's the substance and it's the understanding of Christian life. He's about to embark, like I said, on a historical narrative of faith. He's going to give us 16 plus historical Jewish characters that live by faith to one degree or another. Now, there are a lot of things that, that certain, we can certainly learn from this hall of faith, but do not lose, again, sometimes we can miss the forest for the trees, right? We're so close in on the details, we miss the, the purpose, The same thing can happen in Hebrews 11. We we are going to get into the details in a second. But before we start this, this historical account, don't forget, he's talking to Jews who from the beginning, God was faithful to you. And therefore, don't lose your confidence. Stay faithful to him. Let me tell you about 16 plus different people who throughout your Jewish history have been faithful to God and God was faithful to them. That's the big picture. Now let's jump into some of the, the minutiae of it. That's kind of the top end. Now let's dive into the passage and start to unpack underlying truths. we got about two or three minutes. Let's get after some of it. Look at verse number four as our first example of faith. It says, By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and by it... He being dead yet speaketh. And there is a ton in that small verse. So this is why I mean, take the big picture first. Now let's dive into minutia. Go to Genesis chapter four, verse number one. Please, if you wouldn't, you can keep your finger there back in Hebrews 10 or 11 now, and we'll come back if we have time. But the story of Cain and Abel is one that is often taught incorrectly, in my opinion. Oftentimes, we act as though Cain did some great wickedness by bringing the fruit of his hands. We we act as though it's some great injustice or disobedience that he brought the fruit of his hands and not a lamb, listen to me, the first time, okay? This is really important. Uh, some of you might not share this viewpoint with me, but I would, I would put the responsibility to prove that other viewpoint uh, you can't. Uh, so, so follow with me here. We're gonna go to our text. Look at Genesis chapter number uh, four, verse number one. I'll say this because I think some of you are scared right now. Genesis chapter four, verse one through four is a teaching moment for Cain. At no point before this did God ever tell Cain, don't you dare bring me the fruit of your hands. Don't you dare bring me the fruit of the ground. He's using the sacrifice between Cain and Abel to show them, hey guys, This is what I expect now. This is what I'm pleased with. But Cain takes this moment and does not do what God gives him. God gives him a second opportunity to go back and offer something that is acceptable. So it isn't like Cain was told, don't touch the cookie in the cookie jar. It's it's as though Cain comes and does his very best. And God says, great, that's what I want. And then Cain takes the story and it begins to go the wrong direction. So stay with me. And I I think you'd have a really, really hard time proving opposite of that as though Cain should have already known. Um, Because again, it hasn't been revealed to him. So look it with me if you would. Genesis chapter four, verse one. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. That's really important. You actually see that a couple times in Genesis where Eve or some other woman says, this could be the man that God promised us that would crush the head of the serpent, but Cain does not turn out to be such. Verse number two, and she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Both had jobs that were given by God. It's not a wicked thing to be the tiller of the ground or some way, shape, or form in this day, more righteous to be a carer for sheep. Verse, 30, verse three, and in process of time, it came to pass that Cain, so who comes first? Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of the flock and of the fat thereof, and the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. So it seems that the eldest, Cain, decides to undertake the idea of an offering to God, and he decides to bring the works of his hands. Now, you cannot show me in all of Genesis chapter 1-4 through 4 where that was a wicked thing. In fact, you can find in the New Testament where people do bring grain offerings and so forth. But that hasn't been written yet. There's no way Cain's responsible for that. There's no way that Cain understands all the nature of salvation just yet. We understand now from our perspective, God chose blood over, over man's works. Yes. Did Cain know that? I would say this. He does after this chapter. He does in this chapter. So look at it with me. Um, we, we understand that the story represents man's works and the labor of his hands versus the blood of a lamb. But he only, God made that known, listen, through this story. That promise has not been made or revealed yet before this story. So Cain was bringing what he had and Abel was bringing what he had, but notice what happens in verse five. But unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth and his countenance fell. So this is all that happens. God accepts one and tells Cain, hey, I do not accept that. But Cain was not in trouble as much as he was being taught. He was being instructed by God. This is now what I expect, but he isn't in trouble yet. And notice why I think that, verse 6. And the Lord said unto Cain, why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? He's saying, hey, Cain, don't, don't be mad. If thou doest well, notice doest is a future tense. If thou doest well, thou shalt, shalt thou not be accepted? Like, hey, Cain, I just told you what I want is a lamb. And so go ahead and do that and I, I, I'll accept your sacrifice too. Cain, it's not about that he did better than you. And it's not about that he was better than you. It's, it's I accept blood. Uh, that blood is just what I take. It's not about me liking Abel more than you. It's not that he worked harder than you or you didn't work as hard as him. Cain is being given an opportunity to accept by faith something he didn't have all the clues to, that God accepts blood. And the Bible is going to develop that theme for generations after Cain. But right now, all Cain knows is God wants a lamb. And Cain, if you accept that by faith and offer what I've told you, will you not be accepted as well? Look at what he says. And if thou doest not well. Notice future tense. Hey, Cain, I'm not saying you were, you were evil in bringing that, but I'm saying now, if you go forward and do not do what I've revealed to you in this moment, if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. So Cain brought his works, but God demanded blood. Cain was given another chance to bring blood, but he chose not to because he refused to accept God's right to establish what is and is not acceptable, just like his mother, just like his father. Cain decided to determine for good and evil for himself. So back in Hebrews chapter number 11, verse number four, it says, by faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. So here is this story, this teaching moment that Cain is only responsible for what he knows. And he didn't know at that point. Now, maybe you could have, you could say, well, God did cover Adam and Eve with the, the skin of an animal and not with you know, the aprons made of figs. Sure, but God is teaching and reinforcing this truth throughout the rest of the Bible. But you and I cannot anachronistically apply that back to Cain, who is the second generation of humanity and say, yeah, but he should have known that. At what point did God tell them? Oh, chapter four is when God told him. Hey, Cain, if you do well, God will accept I'll accept you. Go ahead and do what I just, I just showed you. There's two offerings. I choose this one. I don't choose that one. Cain, if you do well, I'll accept you too. And that's where Cain's faith is now presented to him. Where, hey, are you going to do what I asked of you in obedience and faith? Or are you going to, you good with what you did? And Cain decides to be good with what he does. Abel, on the other hand, is deemed righteous. And we'll have to get into that next week. We'll look at Old Testament salvation recorded right here in the very beginning of the Bible that Cain or Abel is counted righteous, okay? We'll look at that next week. Father, thank you for your goodness.